0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, SourceForge sees some downtime, so we'll examine their infrastructure. A new pervasive hacking group gets exposed, and their previous hacks are fascinating. And then we'll take a look at the hacking team with an exclusive roundup. It's a great big batch of your great questions and our answers, a rocking roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 225 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on July 30th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible ScaleEngine. Go over to ScaleEngine.com to go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Happy SysAdmin Day.
1: Hey, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Happy system Day. It
0: is a special day. Happy SAD, everybody. And we'll have more about that in the feedback coming up in today's episode of TechSnap. But the chat reminded us right as we started. In fact, we have a couple of special items to celebrate in the feedback. Alan, uh, our first story this week, when, when I saw SourceForge in the title, I was like, oh boy, what are they doing now? But this is actually a whole other train wreck SourceForge has on their hands that's more up the yeah. TechSnap alley. What's going on?
1: Exactly. Uh, so starting, I guess it was two weeks ago. Uh, SourceForge and Slashdot were completely down for a little while, uh, and then they were down in their uh, or back up in their disaster recovery mode, where basically they only had a light version of the site instead of the full thing. Ouch! Um, and so, based on some blog posts from them, we now have the details of not only a little bit about what happened, but also just uh, a view inside their infrastructure and, and what kind of software they actually use to run something like SourceForge. Mm. I figured that would be quite interesting. Indeed. Uh, and also, yes, this uh, bit quite a few people. For example, uh, we were trying to set up some stuff here at Scale Engine, and the documentation for two of the tools we wanted happened to be at SourceForge as part of the website that was hosted there. And it was down. They we are like, this will be restored soon-ish. <laughs> I was like, ah, sure, Right. <laughs> Go figure. uh, SourceForge suffered a large data corruption problem and was down for uh, quite a while. They got some stuff back up right away. They focused on getting the websites and stuff back up and then the downloads and then the source repositories and so on. Uh, Not everything is back up yet, but they're uh, working through it and they have a blog post with an update on what's done and what's still to be done and when they plan to have big chunks of that done. Uh, But they say the Slash.media, which is a company or the subsection of the company yeah, that, yeah. that does uh, Slashdot and SourceForge. Right. Uh, the Slashdot media sites experienced an outage commencing, uh, say last Thursday, but that was a week ago, so two Thursdays ago. Okay. Uh, we responded immediately and confirmed the issue was related to file system corruption on our storage platform. Uh, this uh, incident impacted all the block devices in our Ceph cluster. Uh, we consulted our storage vendor, and from there went on to formulate our next steps and start trying to restore stuff. So as part of that uh, post, they explain what it is that the back end of SourceForge and SlashDot are actually built with. Uh, So they use CentOS Linux as their server platform. Uh, They didn't mention which version, but I assume probably six. Uh, We use an open source virtualization platform and have in recent years achieved a 75% reduction in physical server count uh, by using virtualization. So running lots of virtual machines on pure physical machines meant that they didn't have to buy as much hardware or rent, or whatever they end up doing. Yeah. We don't really get into that detail. Okay. Um, they say they use open source storage platform Ceph uh, with a mix of spinning disks and SSDs. Uh, their storage uh, backing, their Ceph, is a mix of ext4, XFS, and then they say NFS, although obviously the NFS is how they access it, not, you know, NFS isn't the file system. <laughs> it's just a way to access the other file systems yeah. of the network. But, um, they say their backup solution is open source and they back up to a number of popular cloud storage platforms. Um, so <laughs> they don't go into detail, but it sounds like they back up to Amazon and somewhere else in case.
0: Oh, really? Uh, I was picturing like, ah, oh, we just store a copy on Dropbox, it's
1: good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they have a lot of data. Uh, yeah, I know you're totally when they, when they talk about it later, the the download section of SourceForge is over forty terabytes. Ooh. Uh I think like, that's not that much. I have lots of servers I can have a terabytes. <laughs> Um, but yeah they don't say which cloud services but I'm guessing the cheapest two and they just have two in case one of them goes out of business or whatever because if they're not Amazon they could randomly go out of business right Mm. Um, yeah and they they also say they use uh, open source database stuff um, including MongoDB and various flavors of uh, MySQL you know like MarioDB or Percona or whatever I'm guessing kind of over time they've started using the newer ones but they still stop using the older ones too yeah and they also use Postgres for some stuff. Uh, and they say we leverage scalable data solutions, including uh, Hadoop and Elasticsearch. Uh, and they mentioned that uh, Slashdot is written in Perl, where SourceForge is now written in Python. Hmm. Uh, but both of those stacks are completely open source. And uh, the SourceForge developer services, where they provide you know hosting for like Git or SVN and like a bug tracker and all that, you know, mailing is all that stuff. Uh, that's from a project called Allura which uh, they i think was written at sourceforge but they've since open sourced it and give it over to the apache incubation process so it's a completely open source project now mm-hmm. i would say uh, currently they're prioritizing getting the project websites back up mm-hmm, uh, especially sure. ones that use custom vhosts cuz you know if if a project has whatever.org and it's hosted at sourceforge they really want to get that back up uh, i think all of those are back up now uh So you can access documentation for that open source code you were trying to work with again, which is (laughs) handy. Uh, And then they're also getting the downloads back up. And like I mentioned, they have 40 plus terabytes of downloads. uh, And then they're working on getting the rest of, you know, SVN, CVS, Git, uh, Mercurial, Bazaar, all the different. They basically have every different source code repository thing uh, available at SourceForge.
0: But wow, Uh, Alan, this is like, uh, is this the nail in the coffin? I mean, this is a really bad thing to happen for a a company like this right now. If you're
1: following through their blog posts in order, uh, basically in the week in between the very first post of the outage and the post uh, Tuesday of this week with the updates on it Mm -hmm. is the post that uh, DMI, which is DICE, the job posting site that owns SourceForge and SlashDot, Is looking to sell SourceForge and Slashdot. I
0: saw that. Yeah, yeah, they're looking to sell it
1: off. So yeah, Uh, it's like, and they talk about you know how SourceForge has a good reputation and so on. It's like, well, they did until you ruined it with your download spam and trying to make money off. Yeah, trying to you know include malware with your open source downloads. They've ruined the brand. Yeah, Uh, so I don't know where it would go from here, but it's for sale anyway. Hmm. Uh, so SourceForge didn't actually lose any data because they have the backups. Uh, well, they've uh, done some specific emails to a couple of projects where a couple hours worth of commits might not be there or that they're manually reconstructing. Uh, so I think for some of them even they have the code, that, like the, the patches that were submitted or whatever, but not necessarily the metadata of who submitted it and so on. Uh, but if a project was affected by that, SourceForge just contacted them directly and there weren't very many of those. And it would only mm. be the last couple of commits or whatever, uh, but yes, it does uh, raise the question. You know, a do, so should project move away from SourceForge because it might not be there after a little while, and where do they go to get hosting? You know, there are places like GitHub that will host your so- source code, but when you yeah. actually have to do releases and it, yeah. like you know, and there's other there features that it, it offers like that small Linux distros have their ISO files up there, which are right. huge. And, right. Yeah.
0: And, yeah, there's and yeah. there's documentation, there's community stuff that it provides. Well, and the
1: the, the bigger question is, what about the sort the projects that aren't actively maintained anymore but are still used? You know, like one of the applications I was using, it's still on SourceForge but hasn't been modified since two thousand six. Works perfectly fine. Uh, but yeah, if if SourceForge were to go away, I don't think I would be able to find the code or the uh, the documentation for it anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's always so.
0: solutions like rolling your own GitLab and hosting it yourself somewhere and things like that, but
1: right. And, and but then that, it's the, more what happens to all the projects that right. aren't going to bother moving
0: exactly, or that don't know any better or that are legacy yep. that things that aren't maintained anymore. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the, uh, I, I would hate to see that whole history of you know that whole generation of open source stuff, especially the like basically the whole 2000s of open source just disappear. Uh, because Forge shuts down or whatever.
0: Yeah. Have they said if they're going to be posting like a follow up, a post mortem uh, report on everything? Yeah, so is uh,
1: in the post that was posted Tuesday of this week, uh-huh. uh, they said that once they get everything restored, they'll start working on the post mortem, trying to figure out how every one of the block devices in their Ceph could have gotten corrupted. That seems yeah. fishy.
0: All right, so okay. something to keep an eye so, out for.
1: So the bigger question is are you going to use ZFS next time?
0: <laughs> there it is, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. Very nice, very nice. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'll like tell you. even if 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 you're using stuff on top of it, sure, just you need to have something where the data is not going to get corrupt underneath, right?
0: I'll I invite our uh, I'll tell you I invite our uh, subreddit uh, techsnap.reddit.com, to keep an eye out when that gets posted and submit the link there so we can uh, get it in a future mm. episode of the TechSnap program. Mr. Dude, any other thoughts on that story? Nope. All right, then let me take a moment and tell you about our friends at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com because I think they're the perfect wireless carrier. For our audience. It's no contract, so there's no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. They start with six dollars just flat for the line, and then it's just your usage build on top of that. That's a nice model. It's great for MiFi hotspots, tablets, adding like a GSM chip to a security monitoring system or a Raspberry Pi, or having a backup phone or having it be your main phone like I do. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there. That'll support the TechSnap program. And you can be the audience member that makes a difference and keeps us going. And also, It'll get you a $25 discount off your first Ting device. If you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might because they have a pretty big GSM and CDMA network, two separate networks, and you can bring devices from those networks, and then you'll get a $25 service credit. And that more than paid for my first month. And what's awesome is even though you get all this incredible value, still you, you get like Cadillac-level service. You, when you call at 1855-TING-FTW, you get to speak to a real human being. That's nice. And if uh, you ever need to, you can go online and manage your account through their dashboard, which is particularly fancy. And I've actually been able to transfer devices, deactivate devices, uh, name devices. You can watch your usage, all those kinds of things that you'd want, but really well done and simple without, without even having to speak to someone if you don't want to. I just think that's a pretty nice system. And it's nice that I've been able to do everything I've needed to through it. But here's really what I want you to check out now. You've heard us talk about them for a while, but check out some of the devices they have new. Now, new lineups from the whole range. First of all, the SIM cards start at $9. That's it. No contract with that SIM card. No early termination fee. Then they have the feature phones like the Kyocero Dura XT starting at $47. Again, no contract. LG, a little bit bit nicer. The LG 450, a little bit sleeker, also a feature phone, $58. I like to mention they have feature phones because I think those actually make a lot of sense. Uh, But then, of course, they have everything else you might want. You know, like they have the Motorola G. The Moto G is awesome. Uh, The Moto E, second gen, $122, no contract, unlocked phone. You own it outright. Only pay for what you use. The Moto G and the Moto E and the Blues and the OnePlus and the iPhone and the Moto X and the the, uh, Nexus 6 and the Samsung Galaxy S6, the Moto them, The HTCs, all of them. They have, they have, all, they have all of the great phones over Ting. You can go grab one, or you can bring your own. You, or you can just use a SIM card. It's a really cool service. And all of the features you'd expect, like Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi tethering and, and Hotspot, that stuff, just like built into the plan. It's like not like an extra thing you have to have. You just turn it on in the operating system. It's not a big deal. No bundling or ride-along services. No overages, no penalties for that kind of stuff. All the features you'd expect with no contracts. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show and to get started and check them out. They also have a savings calculator over there. You can plug in your current usage and see how much you would save if you did switch to Ting. .ting techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Mr. Jude, we have Mm -hmm. a group that you and I, I think, have actually talked about when we covered the Anthem hack a while back. Uh, But maybe we didn't know the group's name back then. I can't quite... I don't think we did, no. Yeah. So they're called BlackVine, and now we've got mm-hmm. a new report that gives us some interesting details, don't we?
1: Yeah. So the Semantic Research team uh, has posted this. Uh, they're basically big PDF uh, detailing the BlackVine uh, APT group and what they've been working on. Uh, they broke in. Uh, so Semantic found that it was BlackVine that broke into the health insurer Anthem, uh, installed more than 80 million patient records. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if they can also tie the same people to the what was it? Uh, started with a P. What was the other health care provider that got hacked in a very similar way? It wasn't
0: Primera, was it? No.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, it, it was, was Primera? Primera and one of the other ones. There were like three big ones that got hit uh, a couple of months apart, uh, and they were very. A lot of the signs pointed that it might have been the same people.
0: Okay. Well, I I, mean, I remember. Hmm. I'll watch the chat room see if they recall. Well,
1: me. the other one was like a. Blue Cross, something, but well, like, Premier, there but are like Blue. fifty. Yeah, but there are like fifty different companies with Blue Cross yeah, in the name. Yeah, yeah, it's so all affiliate. Anyway, um, so they say uh, the group BlackVine has the resources to customize malware uh, and to have access to their own zero-day vulnerabilities in uh, Microsoft Internet Explorer in order to launch their watering hole attacks. So they would basically target a website that they knew a lot of people in the industry they were trying to compromise went to. Would somehow find a way to break into that site and inject some uh, a bit of HTML or whatever that would cause uh, the browsers when they visit the site to uh, load their malware and execute uh, a vulnerability against Internet Explorer and compromise the machine. So, right, you add a little iframe into the a website that you know everybody in the healthcare industry reads all the time, and then you can. Exploit the vulnerability in Internet Explorer because you know corporate IT rules mean that they're all forced to use Internet Explorer, and and so forth.
0: Yeah, well, or there's some app that at least mandates it. So
1: yeah, requires I was it. Uh, Blackfins malware is called uh, MyVast, and uh, it was used in the Anthem breach. Uh, said the hack likely began as early as May of 2014, uh, but Anthem didn't realize its system had been compromised until January, and then. Uh, they uh, did disclosure uh, in February once they found out that they had been hacked. They say the hackers made off with personal data, including names, birth date, member ID number, and social security numbers for 80 million patients. Uh, they say, like other Black attacks, the MyVest malware was signed with a fake uh, digital certificate. And so this made it not throw up errors. Uh, you know, when you get the. Uh, the pop-up to to run something with like yeah. Windows UAC, right? It's got a verified name, and so oh, it's okay.
0: Or like a driver or something like yeah. that.
1: Or you know, if you have blacklist things that you know don't let any unsigned executables run, oh, it gets through that. Uh, they say since 2012, Blackfine has gone after other businesses that deal with sensitive and critical data, including organizations in aerospace, technology, and the finance industries. Uh, they say the majority of the tax, about eighty-two percent, were waged against U.S. businesses, but they have also hit. Uh, foreign businesses as well. This is, during his research, uh, Symantec discovered that Blackvine began using exploits around the same time as other hacking groups. Uh, each group delivered different malware and went after certain organizations. Uh, so the fact that they use the same exploits as other groups suggests the attacks are related to the same distribution network or that they're buying their exploits from the same place.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Or maybe being, or, or maybe being funded by a similar source, perhaps.
1: Yeah, or at least just being provided with the exploits by somebody, or something yeah, to that effect. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to say whether you know. We do know that exploits come out and they go up for sale, and mm-hmm. you know, when you're selling an exploit, you'll sell it to as many people as you can as quickly as you can, because once it's been out for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, it'll yeah, likely less, get
0: yeah, exactly, less and less uh, effectiveness.
1: Yeah. say so one of the group's first attacks came in December of 2012 against the gas turbine manufacturer Capstone Turbine. Uh, In that hack, they used uh, Internet Explorer exploit CVE-2012-4792, and uh, they delivered the Sakura uh, Sakura malware. Oh, nice. Uh, 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 Symantec notes that the malware was signed with a digital certificate attributed to a company called MicroDigital, which fooled Windows into believing the program was a legitimate program. (laughs) They don't say whether they stole that certificate or managed to brute force it or what. Uh, in 2012, or sorry, 2013 and 2014, Blackvine targeted companies in aviation and aerospace. Uh, one third-party blog cited by Symantec noted that uh, in 2013, specific employees at a global airline, they don't say which one, but it's one you've heard of, uh, were sent a spear phishing email, uh, including a URL that instructed them to download Hurex. Uh, and that would then compromise the machine and get access to the internal mm. network they were on and whatever. Mm. Uh, Symantec also claims that some BlackBine members uh, may have ties to TopSec, which is a Chinese IT security company, uh. Uh, and is a group that has access to the Ellerwood framework, which might explain their source uh, for some of those vo- uh, zero-day exploits. Uh. But if you want to read more, we have the whole fancy PDF yeah, from we do. Uh, Symantec's security response team.
0: Wow, this is really their bag now, isn't it? This is what they do. Yep. It's not. They're not an antivirus company anymore.
1: Oh, well, they are, but...
0: I mean they are, but that's just, this is what they this is obviously what they're focused on. Well, this is
1: uh, big yeah, money. Well, this
0: is big money. Exactly.
1: Uh, you know, it's not so much about making antivirus for your home computer. It's about trying to defend the network of you know, Lockheed Martin or whatever.
0: Uh Anthem still being a little dodgy about the hack it says too. Like they were refusing mm-hmm. to respond to comments and updates and stuff like that. So still being kind of dodgy about the about the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, companies don't want to look bad and also still very tenuous,
0: very tenuous links to China. Still very tenuous, in my opinion. Um, they're, they're using the Elderwood framework, okay, uh, and they think they have connections to a Chinese company, okay. But I would imagine a lot of probably uh, well-established hacking groups have connections to Chinese companies, but They I probably have a lot of connections to U.S. companies and European companies too, and Canadian companies. So I don't, I'm don't know. Topsec, a Chinese IT security company. That's uh Topsec is who they say.
1: Yeah, um I but I can also see Semantic having uh reasons to to make it to suggest China even when there's not as much evidence as there could be. Right? Cuz it plays into the fears of their clients which are large defense contractors and yeah. large enterprises well, and, in the u.s
0: and look at this it says and you know one of the reoccurring themes it seems to be the black vine has has uh, of, of industries that they, they attacked and you mentioned this when you're covering it the, the one of their first attacks in 2012 was against a gas turbine manufacturer castone or capstone turbine uh they used the ie exploit the cv 2012 40 4792 uh but uh they say that same month they can't really tie this one to Blackvine, but that same month another unnamed turbine power manufacturer was attacked using that same SACUL malware whatever it is that you mm-hmm. yeah and uh, if
1: it looks like that was done by different people, then that suggests that well they're not sure like they're not right. sure if it
0: was different people or Blackvine, but either way it's like that same month these two different turbine manufacturing companies were attacked using the same malware
1: and it's like hmm what was, was did China need a uh a turbine for something?
0: Well, yeah, or like, or are they trying to slow down competition? Could, it, could could that could be another thing, right? It's just slow the competition down? Don't you think? It doesn't even have to be like, I don't know. There's all kinds of reasons. To do, it seems like there's all kinds of reasons to do it, to do it. And of course, we're just speculating because it doesn't necessarily even have to be China at all. It could have been, you know, private company getting that information and selling it to other private companies. Who really knows? Okay. Alan, any other thoughts on that story?
1: Uh, no. Except for that
0: one. All right, let me tell you about DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now and just check them out. If you have any background in virtualization, server administration, uh, things like Apache, all these kinds of like general software to stacks that you've kind of been either expo- exposed to at one level or another, you got to see how DigitalOcean is pulling it off. It's like nobody else out there. It is. Such a slick experience. I'm really impressed by it. Just right there, it's worth checking out. And we have a promo code, so you can do it for free for two months. It's SnapOcean. But let me tell you a little bit about DigitalOcean, because it's going to solve some problems for you. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. And you get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And their pricing is so straightforward. You only pay for the resources you actually use. You can do by the hour if you'd like. And when you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. So you can try out their $5 rig for free. I have a $10 rig I'm using to run Minecraft. It works perfectly for that. I've got got several $5 rigs. That's the one I use the most. And what I love about DigitalOcean is they make it so easy to deploy software. So easy to get up and get going with the base operating system and the software stack you need. Subscribe to the official repositories of that distribution or re- operating system. And their interface to manage all of it is really intuitive and very powerful. It's not, even though they've made it simple and straightforward and it works across all your devices, it's not limited. It's not, you don't have your hands tied behind your back. And in fact, they really let you go free with their API. It's a very well done, straightforward API that replicates the functionality of their dashboard on a larger scale. Are you getting why DigitalOcean is really cool? This is just the basics. SnapOcean. You can deploy a FreeBSD droplet, a Linux droplet. You can get some really fantastic community tutorials written up over at DigitalOcean that just go with part of the service. Once you get going on a droplet, you use these communities, you can really get going. How about backing up your web applications? Here's a really good tutorial on that. They have a whole bunch of stuff over there. How to deploy Rails apps with Unicorn and Nginx on Ubuntu 14.04? Yeah, please. How to install can Apache Tomcat? Server? <laughs> yes. Right, how to install WordPress on Ubuntu 14.04. They have projects that utilize the DigitalOcean API just available for you to take advantage of right now. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean to support this show, but to also get yourself a $10 credit. You can try out that $5 rig absolutely free for two months. You can apply it to your account at any point if you forgot to do it when you set it up. You can also, remember, you can get one of their higher-powered rigs and use the $10 credit towards the hourly pricing. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean. I've got many droplets on there. And I just got back from OSCON. I'll tell you guys more about that in a little bit. And the OSCON coverage that we do is... um, I don't know how else we would do without our DigitalOcean droplet. Like we, we use it as an intermediary while we're traveling. We can st- we can set up resources there. We use it to move files back. Noah goes back to Grand Force, and he's co- D- 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 like, oh, I forgot to give you this file. We use the DigitalOcean droplet as the intermediary. It it when, really is a great system. I
1: love because it. Because with DigitalOcean, you get a full gigabit connection, not just 100 megabits yeah. like you would get from most other places.
0: Yeah, it makes a difference. It really makes a difference. It does. Uh, all right, Alan, so we have a hacking team roundup. Where do you want to start with yeah, this one? So
1: basically, um, instead of a third news story, I have a whole bunch of stories that we'll go through a little bit quicker than normal. Okay. Uh, and I didn't want to completely fill the roundup with all stories but one thing. So I kind of grouped them together. Uh, so basically, I just have a bunch of news that is piled up about hacking team that we haven't talked about yet. Okay. Uh, so the first one is that the hacking team... Uh, an article where Hacking Team claims it always sold exploits and malware strictly within the law. Of course. Which raises the question, why is it legal to sell exploits and malware? at all. But apparently it is, as long as you're selling it to the government and other you know, right. approved entities. Of course. <laughs> uh, but the creepier one was Hacking Team and Boeing talking about uh, plans to build drones that could infect your computer or cell phone via Wi-Fi.
0: Yeah, that's nuts, huh?
1: Yeah, so I'm guessing this would you know, fly above your house or wherever you are uh, and broadcast a, a Wi-Fi SSID like to one that you're already associated with. Like a Honeypot Wi-Fi
0: SSID, basically.
1: Yeah. Get your phone uh, to connect to it. Get your phone to connect to it and then you know, feed it malware or enter, do man-in-the-middle attacks on it or whatever they need to do.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> you got to figure they're not the only ones working on this.
1: Exactly. Uh, in particular... Uh, in this one, it was uh, a company in Washington, D.C. that makes drones had specifically asked them if they could build a ruggedized module that would spew out malware that they could strap to the drone. Jeez. Uh, so there are more details on that over at BetLink. Evil. Uh, Microsoft has done a patch for the Windows kernel zero day that was being used by a hacking team. So if you want more details on that, there's a whole article there. Um NetRegard, which we've talked a little bit about in the past, okay. another company that does kind of the same stuff. Yeah, um, you know, They buy and sell exploits and so on. Like a, They've decided okay. to stop buying exploits after the uh, follow-up from the hacking team compromise. So I'm assuming this means they will still develop their own and sell them, they just won't buy them for random people anymore. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it's a little of, unclear what they're going to do th- Do you think it's because forward. the business
0: is getting too hot and hostile, or do you think it's what? I
1: think it's just them trying to get looked like good guys or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Contrast themselves to hacking team, basically, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. This so next one's constitutional malware, Alan. What is this? Yes.
1: Uh, so this is a, a paper from a conference, and it's uh, talking about how FBI agents have deceived judges, ignored time limits on warrants, uh, don't tell computer owners after they've been hacked, mm-hmm. and don't get the required super warrants uh, before enabling webcam snooping and remotely activating people's webcams.
0: So he's kind of using a play on the words, in a way, here, and making a pretty valid point, saying that, that they're constitutional malware, basically? That
1: yeah. yeah. Huh, yeah, clever. Yeah, that they're uh, circumventing the yeah. rights you're supposed to have.
0: Yeah. That's a good post. I'm reading just the uh, the uh, summary, the abstract here, and yeah. uh, that makes you think. Mm-hmm. OK.
1: Uh, then a more recent one here. The hacking team has promised to rebuild yeah. its surveillance software. Uh, so after you know all this proprietary stuff got leaked, it's like all of our customers that have bought the hacking team software, are, don't worry, we're rushing around like crazy people right now to write newer versions of our software. that yeah, there you go. Uh, won't be based on the stuff everybody knows about, <laughs> so that you can it's all new to stuff.
0: on people? Yeah, it's all new versions. Everybody, new features, all new. Features. Yeah, and they'll
1: be ready in like a week. Yeah, what? what right.
0: right. Yeah, it's gonna be
1: great. So, I, I imagine they're trying to fix the vulnerabilities people might have found in their. Uh, existing code, they got leaked, and basically set up to use new exploits that people won't have patches for yet. Jeez. Or whatever. Jeez, Al. Or, uh, you know, the, the ones that weren't uh, popular, everybody pushed the patches and whatever. And then over, uh, Slasha has an interview with the hacking team CEO, uh, if you want to hear more from their side.
0: Ah, the man himself speaks, huh? Good. Well, there, there you huh. go.
1: Very interesting.
0: This has been an interesting story to follow just from one catastrophe after another and how they've been handling this has kind yeah, of been um, the most You know, We part. talked a
1: little bit about it in the specifically, what was the the French one? Pen, Yeah. And companies like that. Uh, but part of me had a harder time taking Hacking Team seriously because of the name Hacking Team. Yes. Like maybe it made more sense in Italian when they came up with the hacking something. Team. No,
0: no, it's dumb. It's
1: dumb. Yeah, it's just a horrible name. Yeah. Um,
0: it's like but brand yeah. generic,
1: we, we, we've everybody's uh, not been a fan of those uh, types of companies, and yeah, yeah.
0: Well, so uh, I suppose now we just kind of sit back and see. If, if, Do you think the most interesting bits then out of the hacking team releases is is, is hit the web? The, you think probably all the big surprises are over? I think so. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I know I'm sure we'll hear more, but.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure there'll be more, but yeah. Hey, Alan, I got a big surprise for you. ixsystems.com slash techsnap, buddy. ixsystems.com slash techsnap is where you go to get a system that is really going to be the ultimate solution for any solution powered by open source. So if you've got a rig, if you've got a need for a rig that's going to be a flawless implementation because they're going to have well-tested, white glove care before it gets shipped out to you. You're going to get it there. It's going to be some of the best build quality you've ever seen. You're going to have support infrastructure based around it. So if it ever does have problems, they're going to be there to take care of it and a lot more too. In fact, uh, Alan, Alan could probably attest to this. I think, Alan, yes. do you have three servers being built right now? Is that... I do, yes. <laughs> three servers for my IX. Why? Are you a madman?
1: Are you... Have you gone uh, mad? Because I, I needed a lot more storage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there you go. That's a good reason. Uh, the, the one has... The one server has thirty-six six terabyte helium-filled drives, so that's two hundred and sixteen terabytes of storage.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then the other two uh, hold twenty-four drives each, uh, and uh, those will go at my house for backing up the first server.
0: So, so what? What about at your house? You're gonna have how much at your house?
1: Uh, at my house, it'll be thirty-seven. Right. Stand by. Yeah. Two hundred and forty terabytes.
0: Nice. IX Systems is going to build those rigs for Alan. Of course, Alan's paying. Yeah, yeah I mean, Alan's a, oh, he's yes. a paying customer. So is Scale Engine, uh, and you paying know if a you <laughs> get, so you, there's a, there's a large range that you can get. Uh, of course, well, get like
1: th- I, I've I've I bought every end of the spectrum from them as well. You know, I, I bought this little half depth one U server for you know, quite a bit under a thousand dollars for you know a full. It's an E three server with eight gigs of ECC RAM and. You know, four gigabit NICs and everything you would want in a like it's fully powerful server, and it's a little tiny, quiet, one half depth, one U that uh, you don't have to have a rack at your house to use or whatever. Um, You know, for for a couple hundred dollars up through you know giant storage servers that cost you know five figures where the first number is not a one.
0: And of course, they have the units like the FreeNAS Mini, which uh, Tom's yes. Hardware just got a review posted. So if yes. you want to go look at some pictures of that and take theirs, the, did you uh, did you get a chance to look at the Tom's Hardware review for the uh, FreeNAS yes, Mini? Uh,
1: uh, I know Chris Moore that I do BSD wow. now with uh, keeps a, uh, a FreeNAS Mini like this under his desk.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: Because right, it's completely quiet and it provides all the storage he needs and it's nice and fast.
0: Oh, they've got pictures. I like that. They got close-ups. I got a close-up. So uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to read Tom's hardware. Go to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. There you can get their d- white paper. You can download that to learn more about them, maybe grease the wheels up the chain in your organization to move over to a better hardware provider, one that's not going to shy away from, from the real solutions that are going to solve your business's problems, and one that's not going to give you the runaround, and one that's really been in this for the long... They're in this for the long term. They really are. They've been in it for a while, and uh, they're part of the community as well. And the reason why that's important is because they end up working directly with the people that are actually creating the software and solutions that power our infrastructures today. So much of our stack is open source, and a lot of the best minds are working with IX iXsystems. iXsystems.com slash Snap. Mm-hmm. Alan, something big happened this week. Real big. I mean, not, uh, not uh, like, you know... Uh, not uh, like discovering a new planet. Well, no. Maybe it's discovering a new planet big with alien life. Maybe it's in that category of big. That is episode 100 of the BSD Now program. Ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, Alan. 100 episodes straight from the source. Episode 100. People should go check it out. It just came it's... out this morning. Anything uh, of note uh, for this episode, Alan?
1: Uh, we had an interview with um, one of the people that was at uh, Package Source Con talking about Package Source, which is uh, a cross platformish version. It's kind of like the it's NetBSD's version of the FreeBSD ports tree, hmm. but designed to be cross-platform. So on top of being able to compile on lots of different processors and so on, like little MIPS things or whatever, mm-hmm. it also works on other operating systems. So it works on Linux, it works on Smart OS and Illumos oh. and all your open Solaris derivatives. So it's it's used all over the place. Um, and, but it's basically a completely self-contained package management system that doesn't have any dependencies. It basically bootstraps itself and and gives you the access to something like the Ports Tree on any platform.
0: That's awesome. Episode 100 yeah. of the BSDNOW program, and congratulations to the BSD Now team. That's slick. You guys can find that at jupiterbroadcasting.com. This is the midway point of the TechSnap program, so it's a good time to go get the HD version of that show. So when this wraps up, you get more Alan Jude in your face. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting to thread in our subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. And I also want to say happy SysAdmin Day. This Friday, July 31st, is the 16th annual SysAdmin Day. And remember, your network is up and secure and your servers are online because of your SysAdmin. So there are some suggested ways to celebrate cake and ice cream, pizza, cards, gifts. Words of gratitude, custom t-shirts celebrating the epic greatness of your sysadmins, balloons, streamers, confetti. All those things are good on Friday, July 31st. Or maybe, Alan, for that diehard sysadmin in your life, a discounted book on ZFS.
1: Yes. uh, All of the uh, mastery series of books from Michael W. Lucas uh, are half off with the SAD15 coupon code. SAD15. Yes, for System Day
0: 2015. Yep. Half
1: off? 50%? Yes, you get 50% off the ebooks, which are already only $9.99. Uh, so you can get the ZFS book for half price if you go to uh, the link and uh, use that coupon code.
0: Wow, SAD15, uh, that's great.
1: Yes, there's also other books in there like FreeBSD Mastery uh, Storage Essentials, which is basically the book you would want to read before the ZFS book if you mm-hmm. don't know how to manage disks in FreeBSD. It talks about you know partition schemes and all the stuff that's not specific to ZFS. Hmm. Uh, there's also sudo mastery. No matter what operating system you use, you probably use sudo, and you probably use it wrong, so you should read the book and learn how to do it properly. 50% off all that stuff's a great <coughs> yep. deal. And there's uh, DNSSEC. And so you can buy all seven books for only $35 if you uh, use the coupon code.
0: Sad15. Happy sysadmin day, everybody. All right, speaking of uh, uh, BSD and SSDs, Hmm, <laughs> almost rhymes, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, our first one comes in from Gorin about PF Sense and killing SSDs. He says, Hey, Chris, now I'm a big fan of the show. I never miss an episode. My first episode was the PF Sense Makes Sense. So I have a PF Sense question. I stumbled across this topic and he links us to it on the PF Sense forums. It was basically saying that PF Sense will kill an SSD very fast. And the reason is that NAND flash cells can only handle about 10,000 writes before they become. Unusable. Now this topic is kind of old, necessities have progressed a lot since then, but I really want to know if upgrading the drive of my PFSense box will make things better, faster, or worse. I have a few production PFSense boxes deployed, and I was wondering if it's worth buying SSDs for PFSense, and if things will ever be better or worse reliability-wise. I usually run a 2.5-inch 7200 RPM drive inside a Supermicro 1U server with an Atom D25 chip. Also, I install PFSense on a USB 2.0 or 3.0 drive for a small home network, you think the performance will be much slower than if I just use a standard disk? Is it even going to be noticeable? Keep up the awesome shows. Look forward to BSD in episode 100.
1: So the big thing is uh, a USB thumbstick thing is going to wear it faster than an SSD because it has fewer cells to load balance and lo- like less code for dealing with that uh, in the firmware. Uh, but the biggest thing is that PFSense uses a, a nano BSD type setup so it has like two firmware images it can swap between and so on. So an The biggest thing an SSD is probably overkill, just because you're not going to need that much storage. But in the end, most of the there's not going to be that many writes to it, right? The operating system is actually read-only, mounted read-only, and then uh, a memory FS is put on top of that and stores the extracted config files. What about
0: things like you know firewall logs or Squid cache stuff like that?
1: Right, stuff like that's going to write to it, but you know some logs are not going to kill your SSD. Like your average SSD is good to be written to, uh, basically the entire size of the drive. Once a day uh, for five years without dying, an enterprise one is good to write over the entire drive five times a day for five years uh, without a problem. So your commercial, your consumer grade ones won't be quite as good, but in the end, it's you know your log files are not going to be that much churn.
0: Okay, and you know, uh, I, I've, since I deployed my new pfSense firewall at my house, which has been how long now? Um, I've been using an SSD in that because it was a cheap SSD, and I just to be fast.
1: Yeah, I doubt you're gonna you're gonna run uh, be the problem. Yeah. All
0: right. So I'm not sure if we'll have a specific fix here for Tim in Web City, but maybe we can get some general recommendations for him. He has a question. I think it basically boils down to the best random read performance out of array control. He says, "Hey guys, I've been listening to your show for about a year now, and I love the mix of humor and awesome tech details. I'm a school technology director and work together with a small team supporting about 4,500 users, and is close to about as many devices. Listening to Tech makes me smile more." and lose less hair even as I think about the labor of keeping good security and server uptime, I'm trying to get some performance input on a good RAID parity for random read performance on an HP server. We have a couple of Gen 8 HP servers with decent hardware RAID controllers, the 420i's, capable of uh, basic modes, uh, 1 plus 0, 0, 1, 5, 56, and 60 RAID levels. Right now, we run our storage cluster off these two servers via a combination of spinning disk and PCIe SSDs mirrored between the servers with a product from Starwind. The SSD storage mirrors are great, and thanks to large SSD cache is like a terabyte attached to the 11 terabyte spinning disk mirror, the write speed of the spinning disk is great too. But the spinning disk, read performance, not good. The spinning disk mirrors are made up of four drive RAID 0 sets on each side, one set in each server, and again they are mirrored via Starwind for some level of data protection. We have recently added four more drives to each server so that we can test another RAID parity. I'm watching the needle move now as they convert from RAID 1 plus 0 and debating trying RAID 6 or possibly something else. Again, thanks to SSD cache, our write speeds are great, but we need something better in read performance. Going from a pair of 4 drive sets to 8 drive sets will help either way. But is there a RAID mode that could give me the best random read performance? We need something in the interim until we eventually move to a pair of true NAS boxes, from IX systems. The primary workload for this storage is supporting about 40 server VMs in our Hyper V cluster. Spinning disks are three terabytes, 7200 SAS, which I do understand is the largest part of our read performance issue. Thanks for all the great input week after week. Really appreciate you guys. Tim in Web City, Missouri.
1: Cool. Uh, so, yeah, my first recommendation was well, if you did it with ZFS, you would have more control over a bunch of things. Um, and specifically, that Starwind product might be the bottleneck. Uh, it's hard to say because I can't look at your system or whatever. But uh, yeah. In the interim, until you get to the TrueNAS, your best bet might be uh, the one plus zero in a bunch of sets uh, or something to that effect, depending how you're doing it. Now, so currently you're doing groups of four drives, so if you did two of those as one plus zeros, that might help. But basically, for the best IOPS, you'd be looking at just, uh, yeah, like one plus zeros of two disks are mirrored. Mm-hmm and two more disks are mirrored, and two more disks are mirrored, and two more disks are mirrored, and then you stripe across all of those. Right? So you yeah, want the yeah. the highest number of what ZFS calls VDEVs, or, but individual sets of disks. Right? So you want um, as many separate sets of small mirrors as you can because that'll give you the, um, the highest IOPS, right? Because in a, in a mirror set, when you write, you have to write to both of them, right? And, uh, but when you read, you can read from either. So depending how much storage space you need, uh, and it's just read that you're worried about because your SSD is going to solve the right problem, then wider mirrors might even help because you can... If the data is stored on four drives instead of two, uh, then when you read it, you can read from all four at once. Uh, so maybe your best bet would be just, um, you know, four deep mirrors, but you probably need more storage than that. Mm-hmm. So it's really a trade-off of all those things. Um yeah. Uh, but if you if you if you can afford the space cost then obviously doing all four disks as a as one mirror so just all four disks contains four copies of uh, each disk contains a copy of all of the data yeah. then when you're reading you can read from all four, four you can use all four heads seeking yep. at the same time. Yep. Now it depends on if the controller is smart enough to optimize that to get even more out of it but it will definitely give you more than if it's only doing the same thing with half as many drives at mm-hmm. a time. Mm-hmm. But it comes down to how much uh, space are you willing to give up? Or how many drives can you afford to waste on extra copies of the data to read from?
0: Yeah, just for read performance.
1: But the biggest thing is that if you were, uh, if you, once you use the TrueNAS, you could have a terabyte SSD for read cache, and so on.
0: Hmm. That's true. Yeah. All right, Benny writes in with our next question, Alan. He says, Hi guys, Benny from Israel here. While Linux has GlusterFS and Ceph for a while now, and Microsoft has introduced Storage Spaces, uh, Direct... I would like to build a scale-out storage solution using FreeBSD and ZFS. Is there such a solution? My needs are mainly NFS and iSCSI. I saw that GlusterFS has some support for FreeBSD, but I need something that can work in production and won't actually get me fired. Any suggestions? I know that if anyone can answer my question, it would be Alan. Thanks for the great show. So he's like he's looking for something where he can sort of add, like, just keep adding more and more storage from different servers that he adds to the pool. Is that essentially what he's trying to get at here?
1: Yeah, basically to have a, a big storage cluster that spans across... Uh, servers. So yeah, uh, GlusterFS has support for FreeBSD now and it's getting better and better, uh, but I haven't had time to play with it yet. Uh, I actually was playing with it a bit before because um, I was looking at even just using its NFS mode to basically make one NFS file system or, or exported set of mount points. That was actually just combining a bunch of my completely separate ZFS pools into one namespace. Uh, so that I could, you know, mount that as a directory and just access all the servers from one common mount point. Yeah. Um, but I never got around to. So, but, you,
0: but that would you recommend? Condition. I mean, but you're not. He probably he doesn't really want to use Glasser FS on FreeBSD. Really, is there?
1: Well, it's just it's it's not as tested as he probably would like. Yeah. Uh, so there isn't really something available today. Uh, but there was. If you watch Matt Ahrens' talk from BSDcan, he was talking about some. Uh, stuff they're thinking about doing in ZFS itself mm-hmm. because everybody would love that, right? Sure.
0: Yeah, that would be uh, nice
1: But it, that's still at the design phases. So, GlusterFS um, is probably your best bet to try. I just don't know uh, the best way to do that yet.
0: Uh, all right. So, uh, we have a longtime uh, viewer, Chris, writing in about SSL Pondering. He says, Hey guys, longtime viewer of last, and I've been watching TechSnap since the beginning. I love the show, and I have 20 years' experience in Unix IT all at the enterprise level. I love the contrast that Chris consulting and Alan's ISP experience brings to the show. It makes me look at things in a different light. I recently had to regenerate SSL certs for my home web server. They're self-signed. I do SSL because I want to rather than need to. They're 2048-bit certs. I'm wondering, for the sake of argument, if 4096 wouldn't be better. What would this cost me in CPU and network? This is all theoretical, really, nothing needs SSL at all, but I was just kind of curious also, are there any best practices regarding using the same cert for web, mail, DNS, etc.? Is it a good idea for managing them, or a bad thing for security? And finally, you often mention $10 certs. From who? I can never find anything less than 100. Thanks, Chris.
1: Uh, so the 2048-bit is currently the minimum, so going higher, probably okay. You might want to avoid going too high at the moment, just because some browsers might not support them. Mm. Uh, And also, you know, if you want people to access it from a phone, they might have a slower processor. I was going to
0: say, yeah, mobile. But I don't think
1: the processor overhead is that high, especially with things like AES and I allowing most of that to be Mm. offloaded and so on. Sure. Uh, So, I I wouldn't say 4096 is really going to cause you many problems. So yes, you can go ahead and do that. There you Uh, go. If you run, I I don't know any browsers that are causing. And if you like, if you, if
0: I would think if there's going to be a browser that has an issue, it's probably going to be a mobile browser, maybe, just because maybe some weird wonky thing. I don't know about that. You could check it out and let us know. Actually, I'd be really curious because I'm sure there's a lot of people that uh, want to experiment with that. So uh, I had this is uh, just a bit of a community feedback. We're always experimenting with different recording formats here at Jupiter Broadcasting in the background. We often
1: we we didn't get to answer the second half of his. Oh, did he have
0: us? Oh, oh, the the certs. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'll save my. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Uh, So. The one place I looked at was uh, Gandhi.net. G-A-N-D-I.net. They're a... Gandhi. type place. Okay. Uh, they have a bunch of different certificates for different prices. They have uh, standard SSL uh, uh, where actually they'll give you a uh, domain for free with your... If you buy the domain from them, they'll include a certificate for free. Uh, or they have their other ones. They started at about $47. Uh, but... Yeah, uh, their price for a certificate is $16 per year for the SSL certificate. Yeah. Um, and then uh, GeoTrust and the other one both do uh, for usually somewhere between like $9 and $15 as well. Yeah. Um, the most recent place I bought those from was Namecheap. Uh, they okay. have them for that price.
0: Yeah, Namecheap. Also, chat room, we have a couple of recommendations in the chat room for Start SSL.
1: So. Uh, Start SSL. The certificate is free, but if you need to revoke it, like when we had the Heartbleed thing, they charge you then. Mm. Which can actually put you in a weird position.
0: Yeah, because you really uh, got to do it.
1: <laughs> right. But in the end, the amount they charge is outrageous. And it, in the end, it might have actually uh, still saved you money if you don't end up revoking it.
0: Yeah, really. I would think so.
1: Or you know, if your alternative is to pay $100 to some other place, then yeah. the free one's not bad.
0: Yeah, I would think so. So there you go. Uh, thank you for sending that in. Uh, TechSnap at Jupiter Broadcasting. Go to the contact page and send in more. Those are great questions. We do have a few more in the kitty, but we want some more, too. So we have a great batch to pick from next week. All right. So what I was saying is, every now and then, from time to time, we experiment with different recording formats. We don't usually publish them. But I did publish this one. I was, I, was, I want to get some feedback on a... For, specifically, I'm reaching out to commuters. And we have a lot of commuters on the TechSnap program. So I... I'm looking for some A and B comparisons between a multi-track remastered version of Linux Unplugged episode 103 and a standard recording edition that we do for live video production. I will have a link in the feedback section of the TextNet program. It's currently sticky at the Linux Action Show subreddit if you're listening a day or two after this episode came out. And I just kind of want to find out for commuters if there's a big difference in audio quality and if it's something we should investigate further so that way we can uh, make the listening experience even better for our audio listeners. And that's one topic that's important to the TechSnap crowd, so I wanted to mention it here as well. So Linux Unplugged 103, multi-track remastered, linked in the TechSnap show notes. All the things we talked about today actually are in the TechSnap show notes. Funny how that works. <laughs> all right, Alan, so that's all the feedback. Like we mentioned, you can also submit feedback to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, and we have the form at contact. But with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. If you asked what that crazy music means, now the Roundup for Stories it just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And some of these great links came from our fantastic subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, like this first one. Intel's 3D memory is a thousand times faster than modern day storage, puny humans. Well, Intel and Micron have unveiled a new novel kind of non-volatile data storage. During a press conference on Tuesday, they dub it the 3D X-Point. Pronounced cross point, actually.
1: Yes, 3D cross point. Yeah. Uh, it's... Quite interesting, uh, because in addition to the 1,000x speed, it also claims to be eight to ten times uh, more durable as well. So not, uh, you know, doesn't wear out as fast as SSD either.
0: My body is ready. This could be a big breakthrough. You think it's? You think we'll ever see yep. come to market? And
1: they're saying, uh, well, they're saying it'll come out in twenty sixteen, and that the price point will be somewhere between the current NAND flash, but less than the price of RAM. Oh. So it's not going to be necessarily that overpriced either. Yeah. That's uh, the big thing is that it is actually uh, like a material-based storage, apparently.
0: What does that even so, mean, material-based storage?
1: I don't know. So uh, it isn't electron-based, it's material-based.
0: Oh, oh. Whoa.
1: Uh, they're, not, they're not getting into specifics yet, but it kind of sounds like, I don't know, uh, they're physics that are slightly different to how we've been doing it before. Yeah. Uh, but they're 3D stackable and the cross-point connections allow for dense packing of individuals but still being able to access in every individual cell can be addressed even though you're packing them together really close.
0: Wow, wow, wow. Hey, Alan,
1: yeah. this next uh, story. We see a lot of stories like this uh, of the, the Intel one and how becomes. Oh, uh, oh it yes, comes, yes, but, yeah, yeah. But this when the
0: one you th- that we want, you, but you think this one actually goes through. Yes, okay. So, uh, this next story, you knew we had to talk about it. I mean, how could we not talk about it on the TechSnap program, the online cheating site, Ashley Madison? This is the site mm-hmm. for people that are actually planning to cheat. Like, it's like a dating yeah, site. It's like cheating. where
1: both sides are perfectly fine with yeah. having an affair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, Krebs has got a write up about it. 37 million users? Holy
1: crap. Wow, there are 37 million accounts. Not okay. all of those necessarily yes. belong to, and, okay. you know, a lot of them are fake or whatever. It's like any on my website, especially one of this type. There are a lot of, you know, I'll sign up with a fake account just to look around and then maybe if I find something I interesting, so. I'll make a real account or something. Gotta
0: love that slogan, though. Life is short, have an affair. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of straight to the point. Yeah. Uh, they also have some other sites. There's like a cougar something and establishedman.com and so on. Oh, nice. Um, So one of the, uh, Apparently the motivation for the attack where they broke in and stole all this data and are uh, threatening if they don't shut down the sites that they'll release it all was that the sites charge you $19 fee to erase your personal information from the site.
0: Oh, so somebody got a little upset about that.
1: Yeah, so if you create an account and then decide that you don't actually want to have an affair or you don't want your wife to find you, out about yeah, it. Yeah, ha-
0: yeah, or the affair didn't go well or something.
1: Yes. <laughs> then it's $19 to erase all your information. Mm. Except if you pay with a credit card for various reasons, they keep your billing information anyway. Uh, so your name, address, and credit card sure, information sure. is stored even if you pay them the fee. <laughs> and so if you're being charged a $19 fee to be forgotten and then are not forgotten, you know, and that, that's what the attackers claim is their motivation for the, for the hack.
0: <laughs> Ashley Madison, life is short, so just leak all of your information. <laughs> that's one way to tell your spouse.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting because the company behind this, that owns the whole sets of sites, was apparently considering an IPO later this year. And uh, back in May, the Wall Street Journal said, you know, with Adult friendfinder and other sites like this having been hacked before, yeah. um, that's definitely something that investors have to consider before they buy this stock. And then, oh, lo and behold, look what happens!
0: Wow, what a what a jeez! That'll put a that'll put a hold on your plans. That's a good form of corporate espionage, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, well, it, it it'd be interesting to see uh, whether the company actually shuts the sites down or not. I don't think yeah. they will.
0: Yeah. All right, I had to. I don't know what to make of this, but I want to throw it in the TechSnap roundup because I think it's relevant to the TechSnap audience. There's word mm. that new FCC rules may prevent installing things like firmwares like OpenWRT on Wi-Fi routers.
1: Now, yeah, uh, there was some discussion of this in the previous as well because mm-hmm. it's kind of a problem.
0: Yeah, so there's a talk scheduled on August 6th entitled "Open WRT versus the FCC Forced Firmware Lockdown," and the speaker has, has provided the following abstract: The new FCC rules are in effect in the United States from June 2nd, 2015, for Wi-Fi devices such as access points. They require to have a firmware lockdown so the end users can operate with non-so end users can't operate with non-compliant parameters, channels, frequencies, transmitter power, etc. In response, Wi-Fi access point vendors start to lock down firmware to prevent custom firmware, such as OpenWRT, to be installed, using code signing, etc. Since the same type of devices are often sold worldwide, this change not only affects routers in the US, but also Europe, and this also affects wireless communities. And then it goes on other things you'd like to discuss. I wasn't really aware this was becoming a problem.
1: Yeah, the FCC rules have been anti-open source for a long time. Uh, for example... Uh, when you build a physical device and you want to make a change to it, um, mm. you have to pay to be recertified, which costs a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mm. Uh, and so this means that anything open source, every time you did a release, you would have yeah. to do this. And Jeez. that makes it completely impossible. Right. Uh, to actually ship an open source device. Now, separately, once you get into the software, yeah, they're getting very picky about this stuff. And it's like, well, in the end, we just want Wi-Fi that we can put our own software on because that's safer. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not sure why they're so interested in blocking that. Mm
0: -hmm. Maybe it's just ignorance, but I doubt it.
1: I don't know. It doesn't seem like the FCC has the right people's interests in mind.
0: Yeah. All right. So Samsung might have the right people's interests in mind, though. Uh, Samsung Mm -hmm. has issued a fix for some Linux. So if you remember the
1: story we talked about, uh, what was the name of that company? It started with an A. Is it in the news there? uh It's in the, one of the links. Yes. Anyway, yes. Uh, there was a company that reported that they were having this weird data corruption issue mm-hmm. with Trim, and it was killing all their Samsung SSDs. I'm like, don't buy Samsung SSDs. Right. Well, and then, and then Linux went and blacklisted all those SSDs so certain features wouldn't be used to try to avoid the problem. Right. And during the investigation, Samsung determined the problem was actually in Linux kernel all along, <laughs> and it had nothing to do with their SSDs. And oh, good. blaming
0: us. <laughs> Bomp womp. And so now older kernels but, have this problem?
1: Apparently, yes. So um, Samsung has got a fix for it uh, into the kernel, and uh, hopefully people will stop having problems.
0: Yeah, and hopefully that patch that will be backported to a distro near you for all of mm-hmm. you running distros that have really old yes, kernels. Yes,
1: and the uh, Samsung SSDs should get de-blacklisted this way.
0: Now, a black mark has been removed off the internet, as far as I'm concerned, as Google is officially ending force Google Plus integration. First up, YouTube. They say, guess what, guys? gosh. Integration just doesn't make sense. They say now everything will be in its right place. Google Plus well, accounts the, will not be required to YouTube comment.
1: Yeah, but also the one that was getting me was, for example, when uh, the, the real name policy on YouTube that they had uh, meant that now all the videos for the conferences, uh, like BSDCAN and so on, instead of being posted by FOSS LC, the right. group that goes and volunteers and takes videos at all these conferences. Right. Uh, they're all posted as Andrew Ross because that's the other that yeah. the account.
0: Yeah, and I'm not quite sure now uh, how exactly they're going to roll this integration back as far as the administration end goes. Because for companies right now, the way I delegate access to the Jupiter Broadcasting uh, YouTube page is through Google Plus through our company Google right. Plus So I'm,
1: I'm guessing they're not going to disable integration with Google Plus. They're just going to stop requiring it. Yeah. But yes, I'm sure there'll be some ungraceful transition uh, if only, to something else if only in a couple there was years. When they come up with it,
0: some way to have prevented this in the first place. Hmm. All right, Alan. Our next oh, story uh, in the roundup: FireEye intern nailed in Dark Code downfall. What's oh yes, the little FireEye controversy this, here. Uh,
1: dark Code was one of those underground marketplaces that yeah. was selling stuff, and it turns out one of the uh, guys that was selling uh, the Dendroid malware on there. Uh, his day job was working as a white hat malware analyst at FireEye, which is a big research company.
0: Now, I've also heard a rumor that he's just the fall guy for FireEye, that they used him so that way they could just blame him when things went south. There's a, well, a I, little I think,
1: hubbub going around about that. Well, it's weird because FireEye is a security research company and, and it has nothing to do necessarily with selling malware.
0: Well, that's why there's hubbub. That's why it's yeah, a bit of a hubbub. <laughs> that's that people. So, okay. So the rumor is, is that FireEye higher ups in FireEye were, had approved selling malware that they had found, and then they, they were selling it through back channels. And they used this guy to make the sales, so that way, if they ever got caught, they could just say oh, I was some kid that did it.
1: My biggest argument against that one is FireEye has. Many, 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 many zeros. I know, I know. Selling, got, selling this malware for $300. I agree. You know, maybe a manager was doing this, Yeah, but it wasn't something sanctioned by FireEye itself. Because it's there's bigger because fish to front. there's just not front. enough zeros involved for FireEye to, to bother.
0: Just saying. Just saying, that's what people are saying. That's, yeah. that's well, the hubbub. I hub
1: can definitely it. see how, how somebody else that worked up at FireEye and had you know administrative control over this intern might have done... You know, There might be something like that going on, but it definitely wasn't all the way up to the top at FireEye just because... It doesn't have enough zeros to bother.
0: Did somebody? Uh, did somebody SWAT Brian Krebs?
1: Yes, back what? in
0: 2013. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Yes, I remember that one. Yeah. I thought this happened again. Oh, okay. yes. Yeah,
1: so just this week, though, he got a letter from the Department of Justice saying, "Hey, we noticed that you got swatted, and we arrested one of the people that did, and they pled guilty."
0: Oh, oh, okay, okay. It happened again. So, so that's
1: apparently, apparently, the, the Department S- of Justice is actually cracking down on this and is uh, going after a bunch of people. Although this one in particular looks to be related to an investigation to a specific site, uh, where Brian Krebs did an expose on this site that was uh, posting docs on celebrities and like mm-hmm. social security numbers and so on. Mm-hmm. And after a story about it, a couple of days later, he gets swatted. And he was like, I wonder if those two things are related. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the Department of Justice is arresting a bunch of people related to the site, and all of a sudden he gets this letter saying, yes, yeah, one of the people that we arrested uh, is being charged uh, under a bunch of charges including uh, conspiracy to do this to you, and uh, as such, here's your notification. Mm. They don't say exactly who or what. It's a very vague letter. It was like, why did you send this to me, Ben?" if yeah, other than
0: we just want to get the word out that we're cracking down on it, maybe.
1: Maybe. Well, Which well is the letters just to him, you know, uh, I imagine went to a bunch of other victims as well. Yeah. Yes, it's good to finally know that there's something being done about it well, years
0: later. It's horrible but, PR for the police force, too. So you'd think they'd want to do something about it because it just...
1: Well, this is... Federal at this level, right?
0: Yeah, I know, but it's yeah. is it, but it's like the worst PR possible to keep to like how embarrassing from an outside perspective from the U.S. like that swatting is even a thing that we have a term called swatting that itself is an embarrassment
1: and and the fact that it doesn't happen in any other country,
0: right? So yeah, I think it would be in their best interest to clean it up. I in my opinion. Now I love this one because anytime Experian gets a little kick in the knee, I'm uh, I'm happy. Now even if it's just a poke, even if it's just a poke in the neck, I'm happy. So what's going on here? Yeah,
1: so so like we talked about before, Experian uh, bought this company, and this turns out that company was selling yes. uh, people's IDs right. to an ID theft ser- service. Uh, and they didn't do right. much
0: about it during the time. Was part of the problem. Like they were not seem to be motivated
1: to. They, clean they it weren't up. doing any checking on what was going on. And so people whose identity was stolen through this ID theft service that was buying the records in bulk from Experian and then selling them on the black market, uh, the people that were affected by it are now uh, engaged in a class action lawsuit against Experian uh, for their, you know, lack of diligence. Good for them. Good for
0: negligence. them. I hope they get something out of it. I hope they do. Yeah. Experian I hope can that afford everybody
1: it. anybody else considers about, you know, Hey, if people trust us with data, we should actually make an attempt to not just sell it to everybody who will pay us.
0: Yeah. Wow. And then Especially if it,
1: when they're from was it like Vietnam or something, it was like yeah, that's obviously right. Shady. It was yeah. so obviously shady. It wasn't funny.
0: Yeah, that would be a. You know what? If anybody ever, you know what? If, if this is, I'm gonna just put this out there. If if you could do us a text nap solid and find the time link and find like a YouTube video and link that in the subreddit of when we covered that story. Uh, I would really like that because that's a go to story for us. And we should put that, like, if we ever do a best of, we should put that in there because it's a. We have like these cornerstone stories, and that, that Experian uh, guy selling Experian data was one of them. I would love help on that because I have no idea where that would be in the TechSnap catalog, TechSnap catalog. But I'd love to find it. And you can link using YouTube to the timecode specifically, and then just submit it over at TechSnap.reddit.com. Alan, that brings us to the end of today's episode of the Tech Snap program. TechSnap.red.com is where a lot of these stories came from. You could submit a story that you'd like to see us have covered there or engage in a discussion with our community. And join us live, won't you? We do this show live Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific over at JBLive.tv,
1: which is 4 p.m. Eastern, 20:00 UTC.
0: Or you can go to JBLive.info for the audio-only version of this show, which is great for commuting or sitting at your desk where they don't want a video stream or whatever. I don't know. JBLive.info's got the AM and FM versions. Also, RSS feeds of this show available, so you just get the download version as soon as it's available. Show notes for everything we talked about, also over on the website, and all that good stuff. But that brings us to the end right here, so I want to say thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of TechSnap. Don't forget to tune in on the next week's show, and we'll see you right back here, right then.